Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Rossini. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a pina colada, and on this week's episode, we're exploring one of Italy's most famous unsolved cases, the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. Emanuela was born on January 14, 1968 in Rome, Italy. She was the fourth of five children to Ercole and Maria Orlandi. Her father was a Vatican clerk, and the family was part of a small group of lay Vatican citizens living within the walls of the city-state. The Orlandi family had lived within the Vatican City for 100 years and served seven popes. Emanuela's older brother Pietro has said that the children were free to roam the Vatican gardens and that they had a happy childhood. Emanuela enjoyed pop music, played piano, and was part of her church choir. She had finished her second year at secondary school at the time of her disappearance and was just 15 years old. Though the term was over, Emanuela attended flute lessons three times a week at a music school related to the Pontifical Institute of Sacred Music in Rome. To get to her classes, she usually took a bus and then walked the last few hundred meters to the school. On the afternoon of June 22, 1983, Emanuela left home around 4 p.m. She was running late and it was extremely hot out, so she asked her brother Pietro for a ride, but he was unable to drop her off. After school was over, she called home and told her sister Federica that before the lesson, a man approached her and offered her a job as an Avon Cosmetics Company representative to hand out flyers at a fashion show. The two-hour job would have paid her around 590 euros in today's money, and because of this high pay, Federica told her sister not to take the job and to talk about it with their parents. On her way out of class, Emanuela told two other classmates about the potential job. Following her music lesson, Emanuela had plans to hang out with her sister Christina and their friends, but Emanuela didn't show up. The classmates last saw her at a bus stop in front of Palazzo Madama around 7.30 p.m. with another girl who has never been identified. When Emanuela didn't come home that night, her family began to worry. They quickly began looking for her in the area between the Vatican and her music school and called local hospitals. Police initially told the family that it was too soon to report Emanuela as missing, and she wasn't officially declared missing until the following morning. Even then, police thought of her as a runaway and even told one of her sisters not to worry because, quote-unquote, she's not that beautiful. Two witnesses told police they saw a girl matching Emanuela's description talking to a man in a green BMW outside of her school on the afternoon of her disappearance. Her case quickly gained media attention. By the end of the month, missing persons flyers were all over Rome. At some point, the Italian Secret Service, the SISDE, came to the family's home and told them to install a tape recorder to record phone calls. On June 25th, the Orlandis received a phone call from a 16-year-old boy named Per Luigi, claiming that he and his fiance had met Emanuela that afternoon at Piazza Navana in Rome. Pierluigi gave specific details about Emanuela's appearance and said that she had run away from home and that she was selling Avon products. Three days later, they got another call from a man named Mario. He said that he owned a bar in the area between the Vatican and Emanuela's music school. He alleged a girl named Barbara told him she was on the run from home and 
that she was disappointed about missing her upcoming school concert and that she'll be back for her sister's wedding. On July 3rd, during his weekly address, Pope John Paul II theorized Emanuela had been kidnapped and asked for those responsible to come forward. This was the first time the Orlandis would hear about a possible kidnapping. Others paying attention to the case found his wording strange and felt that he knew Emanuela was alive and knew who was responsible for her disappearance. The Rolandis then started getting anonymous phone calls. The first caller claimed that Emanuela had been taken captive by a terrorist group demanding the release of Mehmet Ali Aja, the Turkish man who had shot the Pope in 1981. The Italian media believed that the calls were coming from the Grey Wolves, a Turkish ultra-nationalist neo-fascist youth organization of which Aja was a member. More calls came in over the following days, including one from a man identified as the quote-unquote American, due to his accent, who played a recording of Emanuela's voice over the phone. The family truly felt the recording was Emanuela's voice. A few hours later, in another phone call to the Vatican, the same man suggested an exchange of Emanuela for Aja. The anonymous man mentioned the quote-unquote Mario and a quote-unquote Pirilugi as of the earlier phone calls, defining them as quote-unquote members of the organization. Emanuela's case soon became world news. On July 6th, a man with a young voice and an American accent told the A. NSA news agency of the demand for Emanuela Aja exchange, asking for the Pope's participation within 20 days and indicating that a trash can in the public square near the parliament would contain proof that he had Emanuela. These were to have been photocopies of her music school identity card, a receipt for tuition, and a handwritten note from Emanuela. Two days after that, a man with an alleged Middle Eastern accent called and asked for a direct phone line with Cardinal Agostino Casaroli, the Vatican's Secretary of State. The line was installed on July 18. A total of 16 telephone calls were made by the quote-unquote American from different public telephones. On July 17th, on the instructions of the alleged kidnappers, a cassette was found near the headquarters of ANSA, which appeared to have been the recording of a girl being tortured. The police told the family they did not believe it to be Emanuela, although her brother had expressed doubts. However, former law enforcement agent Antonio Asarare who first found and listened to the audio cassette, claimed that the recording given to the Orlandi family and later published was not the original one he found. He claimed that in the original recording, there was not only a girl being tortured, but also the voice of a band. Aja himself was questioned. During his transport, he told the press that he condemned Emanuela's kidnapping and that the KGB told him to kill the Pope. 
On the day of their demanded exchange, the American claimed that Emanuela's body would be found. It's theorized that the kidnappers knew Aja would not be released and had new demands. In early August 1983, ANSA received a written statement from an organization calling itself the Turkish Anti-Christian Turkesh Liberation Front, later simply referred as Turkesh, who claimed to be holding Emanuela in exchange for Aja's release. Turkesh sent seven letters in total between August 1983 and November 1985. Although they showed no evidence of Emanuela's captivity, Turkesh was able to provide many precise details about her private life, even mentioning the number of moles on her back. In October 1983, Turkesh released a statement saying they were also responsible for the disappearance of Mirella Gregory, who had gone missing in Rome 40 days before Emanuela. Then-President of Italy, Sandro Pertini, made a public appeal for the girls' release later that month. Following this, the two disappearances were often associated with each other. Before the end of the year, the Pope visited the Orlandi family home and told them that Emanuela's disappearance was a case of international terrorism and that the Vatican was doing all that they could. By the end of 1983, Emanuela's case had gone cold. Fourteen years later, in 1997, the first investigation on Emanuela's case was dismissed by the public prosecutor of Rome due to a lack of new evidence. Sadly, Emanuela's father died in 2004, a month after giving his last interview. Before his death, he reportedly told Pietro that he was betrayed by those he served. In 2013, two weeks after his election, Pope Francis met the Orlandi family after a mass. Pietro claims that Pope Francis told him twice that, quote, Emanuela is in heaven, end quote, implying his sister's death. According to the Orlandi family, this statement was proof that the Holy See knew what happened to Emanuela, despite the Vatican claiming over many years that it was not involved in the matter. Pietro Orlandi asked many times to have a meeting with the Pope in order to ask him more, but the Vatican never replied. Let's take a look at a few theories as to what happened to Emanuela. The first theory we'll discuss is that Emanuela's disappearance was connected to Mehmet Ali Aja. Aja has claimed that Emanuela was kidnapped by Bulgarian agents of the Grey Wolves. In a prison interview, he said that she was alive, not in danger, and living in a cloistered convent. Following his release from a Turkish prison in January 2010, Adra said in an interview with Turkish state television that the Vatican was keeping Orlandi a prisoner for him. He also alleged Orlandi was living in Central Europe as a nun. No clues were found about the existence of Turkish. Neither the Italian authorities nor international intelligence agencies believe such an organization ever existed. However, the detailed information they provided about the girl led Italian investigators to conclude that Turkesh was a fake organization created by the people responsible for Orlandi's disappearance with the intent to mislead them. The fact that Tarkesh was aware of information known only to the Italian authorities led many to think that the kidnappers had linked to the Italian secret services. In 2008, Gunter Bolsak, a former Saucy agent, said that the secret services of East 
Germany used the Orlandi case to create a false connection between Aja and the Grey Wolves in order to divert attention from the investigations into the theory that Aja was actually involved with the secret services of Bulgaria when he studied his attempted assassination of Pope John Paul II. According to Bonsack, it was the Stasi who sent fake letters to the Vatican written in Turkish or Italian in order to make them believe the Grey Wolves had Emanuela and wanted Aja's release. Bonsack said the order for this operation, called Operation Pabst, came directly from the KGB. It should be noted that the Pope had been hoping to bring Catholicism to the Soviet Union at the time of Emanuela's disappearance. Many also doubted the involvement of the Grey Wolves or another group because their phone calls were not typical kidnapping calls. It appeared as though there was no real strategy behind them. The calls did not start coming until after the Pope spoke. The American never said he was acting on behalf of the Grey Wolves, and the Vatican never shared details about their negotiations with the kidnappers. According to journalist Andrea Purgatori, a source later analyzed the quote-unquote torture recording and believed it came from a porn film. He went on to say in the 2022 Vatican Girl Netflix docuseries that terrorism was a decoy to take attention away from something that happened in the Vatican. The next theory that we're going to look at is that organized crime was involved. In July 2005, not long after Pope John Paul's death, an anonymous individual called into an Italian TV show and said that the secret to solving Emanuela's case was to see who was buried in the crypt of the Basilica di Sant'Apollinare, a Vatican-owned church in Rome that was not far from Emanuela's music school. In 1997, a newspaper article made public the fact that Enrico de Pettis, the leader of the Banda de la Magliana gang, was buried in the crypt. Many wanted to know why de Pettis, a violent criminal known as the most powerful gangster in Rome, had been buried in the crypt of a major Roman basilica, which was typically saved for high-ranking figures such as cardinals. The police union protested, but when neither the Vatican nor Opus Dei felt the need to justify it, it was seemingly forgotten until the phone call in 2005. In May 2012, the tomb was opened at the request of the Orlandis. There were no remains belonging to Emanuela alongside de Pettis inside. The caller also said to look into, quote, the favor that de Pettis did for Cardinal Paletti, end quote, implying this was the reason for his burial at Sant'Apollinare. Paletti was at the time the president of the Episcopal Conference of Italy and Cardinal Vicar of the Diocese of Rome. In 2012, the Italian Ministry of Interior confirmed that Paletti had approved the burial request sent by an Italian priest. While no clues were found in the tomb linking de Pettis to Emanuela, the information brought up for the first time the theory that Banda della Magiana could have been involved in the girl's kidnapping. In February 2006, Antonio Mancini, a former member, said in an interview that he recognized the voice of one of the two first anonymous callers to the Orlandi family as one of de Pettis's men. This testimony was eventually confirmed by Sabrina Madarni, a former girlfriend of De Pettis, who corroborated that Emanuela was kidnapped by De Pettis' men and that she herself had a role in the girl's concealment. 
She said that Emanuela had been drugged and kept at a home near Rome for 10 days before being moved to a different house owned by a woman close to the game. She said she knew it was Emanuela after seeing the missing persons posters across the city. She knew the Pettis to have dealings with the Vatican and claimed that Emanuela was kidnapped by the Pettis' gang on the orders of Archbishop Paul Marcicus, the disgraced former head of the Vatican Spank, quote, to send a message to someone above them, end quote, as a part of a quote-unquote power game. She alleged that she and the Pettis drove Emanuela in a drug state to a Vatican gas station where she was delivered to a man dressed as a priest and driven off. The credibility of Sabrina has often been questioned due to the ways she changed her story and her history of drug abuse. When her first testimony was leaked to the press in June 2008, she began changing her story, confusing the sequence of events and claiming the involvement of people who were already dead by 1983. In particular, Sabrina changed Emanuela's whereabouts several times, which altogether led the Italian authorities to doubt her testimony. However, a journalist from the Italian TV show spoke with Sabrina in private for some time and believes a majority of her story. Emanuela's case was reopened after Sabrina's claim, and one of the first investigators to work with her believes her due to the specific location descriptions that turned out to be true. Three years later, Antonio Mancini claimed that Emanuela was kidnapped by DePettis and his gang. In 2011, he went further and said Emanuela's kidnapping was one of a number of attacks that the gang was making against the Vatican in order to force the restitution of large amounts of money that they had lent to the Vatican Bank through Roberto Calvi's Banco Ambrosiano. This was a bank in Milan affiliated with the Vatican that laundered money coming from illicit transfers, including by the gang. It's theorized that the Magliana gang kidnapped Emanuela to put pressure on the Vatican to repay a large amount of money. It had borrowed to secretly fund Solidarity, the Polish trade union that at the time was active in fighting communist rule in Poland, the then Pope's homeland. Something that potentially supports this theory is that Emanuela vanished the same day that Pope John Paul II made his return to Poland. This was a day of celebration for the Pope, and some believe her disappearance on the exact same day was a message from the Mafia to pay up. And finally, we'll take a closer look at the Vatican's potential involvement. In 2012, well-known exorcist Father Gabriel Amorth alleged that Emanuela's kidnapping was, quote-unquote, a crime of a sexual nature. He said that a recruiter from the Vatican police took her and forced her to take part in sex parties before being murdered. He told La Stampa, quote, that network involved diplomatic personnel from a foreign embassy to the Holy See. I believe Emanuela ended up a victim of this circle, end quote. He has not provided any evidence to support these claims. In 2017, another Vatican-related theory arose when journalist Emiliano Fittipaldi came into possession of Vatican documents that had been stolen during the Vatican leak scandal of 2015. Inside, along with other documents, was a dossier on Emanuela. The Vatican had previously denied internal documents on her, but it was discovered that documents were hidden from the police investigation for over 30 years. 
One of these documents, signed March 28, 1997, and mailed to two archbishops, reportedly shows that the Vatican spent over 250,000 euros supporting Emanuela from her disappearance in 1983 to 1997. This included everything from tuition to housing to medical bills, all within London, making it appear she had been living in the city under Vatican protection. The address in the document was for an all-girls youth hostel connected to the Vatican. Within the documents was a large expense for a transfer to the Vatican. I believe it was one of like the last ones. And this is believed to be funds to cover transporting Emanuela's body back to the Vatican and a funeral service. At least one journalist with ties to the case has questioned the validity of the documents, though. And though the Vatican and law enforcement have denied the claims in the documents, the Orlandi family and many others theorized that the documents were leaked as a warning between internal factions within the Vatican to keep the truth a secret. This was not the first claim of Emanuela living in London. In 2011, during an Italian TV show that Pietro Orlandi made an appearance on, an anonymous caller who identified himself as a former Italian military agent claimed that she was alive and being kept in a mental hospital in London. The caller also claimed that the kidnapping was carried out due to the fact that her father was aware of the money laundering involving the Vatican Bank and Banco Ambrosiano. In April of this year, 2023, Pietro revealed that he came into possession of a 1993 letter by then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, to Cardinal Paletti. In the letter, Carey mentions Orlandi and suggests a personal meeting with Paletti to talk about the matter. The letter was mailed to 176 Clapham Road in London, the same address shown in the 2017 document. And this letter lent credence to the theory that Emanuela could have been transported to London following her kidnapping. In a 2019 interview with The Guardian, Pietro said, quote, I don't know about the theories, but I do say this. The behavior of the Vatican over these 36 years has been one of secrecy and lack of collaboration. And it has made me think there are leaders within the Vatican who know what happened. From Pope John Paul II to Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, they all know what happened. But due to this being so damaging to the image of the church, they've been doing all they can to ensure that the truth doesn't come out, end quote. In 2022, during the Vatican Girl documentary, an anonymous friend of Emanuela said that a week before her disappearance, Emanuela called her and said she had a secret she had to tell her. When they met, Emanuela looked scared and ashamed. She told this friend that someone close to the Pope had been quote-unquote bothering her while in the Vatican Gardens. It was understood that this meant some type of unwanted sexual advance. This friend has remained anonymous out of fear for her safety and says she stayed silent for so long out of fear and shame. She did not think Emanuela would have told her family since her dad worked at the Vatican. She was worried that her family would have to move. Pietro agreed that she most likely wouldn't have told their family. There have never been any accusations of sexual abuse on Vatican grounds. That same year, an Italian journalist published a recording of a man affiliated with the Pettis and his gang who alluded to Emanuela being kidnapped at the request of someone inside the Vatican for the purposes of covering up a sex scandal. An alleged plot between the gang and the Vatican had already been mentioned back in 2009 by a bandal 
mob boss who was working with law enforcement. If sexual abuse was taking place, the kidnapping could have been used as leverage to blackmail the Vatican. In addition to these theories, the Vatican was criticized for not cooperating with authorities and not opening an official investigation into Emanuela's disappearance despite being a Vatican City resident. They claimed that the case fell within Italian jurisdiction. However, there has been evidence to suggest that the Vatican opened an investigation without notifying Italian law enforcement. According to the Toronto Star in 2014, a petition to Pope Benedict XVI requesting a Vatican inquiry into Orlandi's disappearance with over 100,000 signatures received no response. Since her disappearance, there have been several discoveries of skulls and bones near the Vatican, but none have been identified as Emanuela. In summer 2018, the Orlandi's lawyer received an anonymous letter with a picture of the statue of an angel in the Teutonic Cemetery inside Vatican City. The letter read, quote, if you want to find Emanuela, search where the angel looks, end quote. The following year, the Vatican opened two tombs within the cemetery to be examined by a forensic anthropologist. The tombs were empty and did not house Emanuela's bones or the bones of two German princesses who were supposed to have been buried there. The family lawyer feels that the tombs were used as blackmail of people that know what happened to Emanuela. A journalist also said opening the tombs was the Vatican's way of admitting someone inside could have been involved. Later during the exhumation, thousands more bones and fragments belonging to dozens of people were found in the underground ossuaries at the Teutonic College. But the findings showed that, quote, none of the remains could be dated later than the end of the 19th century, end quote, according to Vatican News. Though no evidence of Emanuela was found, her story was brought back into the spotlight. The pressure on the Vatican increased over the last decade, and on January 9th, 2023, the Vatican announced that they would reopen Emanuela's case. Two months later, Pietro Orlandi gave his first official testimony to the Vatican City head prosecutor. June of this year marks the 40th anniversary of Emanuela's disappearance, and she is the Vatican's only missing person. Del, what are your thoughts on Emanuela's disappearance? So this case is definitely a wild one. I definitely think that there is probably some shady things going on with international forces. I don't believe that it's the Vatican involved. I definitely think there's a lot of credence that the Turkish government or these Turkish forces were involved versus the Vatican. I think that the fact that the family worked at like within the Vatican City is the reason why the Vatican has been so close to this case and tied to it because it's sort of the situation of like, oh, it's one of our own. We want to find out what happened. And that's something that commonly comes up. <laughs> this web of like De Pettis and his connection and different like banks and scandals involved, this definitely seems like it was ripped out of a Netflix series in a way where as I was kind of listening and keeping track of the different details, I kind of just ended it with like mobsters are horrible no matter where they're at and they're likely involved in some shenanigans no matter what. I just don't think that the Vatican was involved with this person. I don't know if this is a case that will be solved. I think that the age of the case 
the fact that there is no body. We don't even know like where she died and how she died. Like, was it from natural causes? Was it something more like suspicious? Who knows? I don't know. I usually have like an essay formed with like thoughts in this case, but this one is just so wild, so crazy. I want to hear your thoughts on it. This is a really wild case. I really recommend watching the Vatican Girl documentary if anyone is interested in learning more. I think the family is very much involved, and I really respect the Orlandi family. They have done so much to try to search for their sister, their daughter, and I respect them for any time someone has brought something up, they look into it because why not? Like If it can help them, they want to do that. I agree that it is kind of hard to know because there is so much evidence from different people and different theories that does make sense, but then there's contradictory evidence. I do think, though, that the Vatican was involved. To me, I think I do believe that the gang was involved. I think all these people coming forward, that convinces me personally. And I think the fact that she is the Vatican's only missing person, like the to this day, that doesn't sit right with me. I think that's kind of suspicious. Now, do I think it was like sexual abuse? I don't know about that because it is strange that, you know, if it was money laundering, why wouldn't they have taken a cardinal or a priest? If it is the Vatican, why was she taken? So in that regard, that does make me think like, was she going to say something about sexual abuse? But I feel like the money laundering is really what gets me. And there is proof. We could do like a whole show on the Vatican's like financial abuses. And we're going to talk about that a little more in a minute. But that's what I'm leaning more towards. I think there is bits and pieces of the truth in each of the theories that we presented. I do think that it has something to do with the Pope wanting to bring Catholicism to the Soviet Union and people not being okay with that. I feel like there is truth to the mafia being involved because of where where was this money coming from and wanting to send a message. That all gets me. I don't know if we will ever have this solved. I'm really glad that the case was reopened. And I think we're going to be learning a lot more. But if it was the Vatican, I don't know if they would really admit to it. I think it's really interesting that it seems like every like 10 or so years, someone is coming forward with like a little bit of information. So who knows, maybe in like, you know, another five or so years, we'll get a little more of this. Hopefully not. Like I said, if they're looking into something, I think it's interesting, too, that Pope Francis told Pietro, like, your sister is in heaven. And you can definitely look into that one of two ways, that he knows what happened or he's just trying to be supportive. And, I mean, realistically, she probably is dead by now if we haven't heard anything from her in all of these years. So maybe he was trying to take that approach. I know Pope Francis's platform is one of transparency within the church. So is that his way of saying like, yeah, I know your sister's dead. Who knows? I don't know. I hope more will come out, but I'm not super confident that it will be solved. But I also like a little bit of me does kind of see it being solved. I don't know. 
It's a really fascinating case, and there are so many layers to it. So we just talked about some controversies and scandal within the Vatican, and that's really nothing new. They've always existed to some extent. From Renaissance popes bribing their way into office, keeping mistresses, and appointing relatives to high church positions, there's always been some sort of controversy. Pope Sixtus IV built the Sistine Chapel, but appointed six of his nephews as cardinals. One of them, Julius II, uh, was a patron to Michelangelo and Raphael. He raised a fortune by selling indulgences or exemptions from eternal punishments for sinners. I remember learning about that in history class. The practice was so insane, and it so shocked that Martin Luther that he broke with Rome and launched the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so here are a few more recent Vatican scandals. And the first is VataLeaks, which we did talk a little bit about. The VataLeaks or Vatican Leaks scandal began in 2012 when Italian journalist Gianluigi Nuzzi published a story or a book entitled His Holiness, The Secret Papers of Pope Benedict XVI consisting of confidential letters and memorandums. The documents included claims of corruption in Vatican finances, death threats against the Pope, and blackmailing of gay priests, among other things. In May 2012, Pope Benedict's butler, Paolo Gabriel, was arrested and charged with having stolen and leaked the papal correspondence. According to La Repubblica, the dossier comprising quote unquote, two volumes of almost 300 pages bound in red, end quote, had been consigned to a safe in the papal apartments and would be delivered to the Pope's successor upon his election. Gabrielle was sentenced to 18 months in October of 2012 for stealing the pontiff's private correspondence, but was pardoned by the Pope in December 2012. However, the leaks continued after Gabrielle's arrest, and many suspected that the real culprit was disgruntled prelates inside the Vatican bureaucracy. Pope Benedict XVI retired soon after the leaks, claiming his poor health as reasoning behind the decision. It's believed that the leaks also played a role. Then, in 2015, Nunzi and journalists Emanuele Fittipaldi both released controversial books based on leaked Vatican documents marking the second Vatileak scandal. This more closely focused on the church's financial problems, but also had examples of deep-rooted corruption. According to the Associated Press, Fedopoli's book detailed severe financial mismanagement in the Vatican, such as 200,000 euros earmarked for a Rome's children's hospital being diverted to renovate the apartment of a former Vatican Secretary of State. Nancy alleged that Montessor Gileppi Sinecop knocked down a wall separating his flat from a neighboring priest's flat and even had some of the neighbor's belongings moved into a box. He was demoted by Pope Francis. Nancy also claimed that Peter Pence charity is a quote-unquote black hole with secrecy surrounding how the funds are spent. One of Pope Francis's goal was to bring financial transparency to the Vatican Bank. This scandal came early into Pope Francis's papacy. Both the journalists faced charges, which was the first time a journalist had been put on trial by the Vatican court. Both were eventually cleared. Next, we'll take a look at the Vatican and its role in World War II. 
Adopting a stance of official neutrality, the Vatican refused to yield to Allied pressure to speak out against the Nazis during World War II. Throughout this period, the Church rarely opposed anti-Jewish persecutions and rarely denounced governments for discriminatory practices. When it did so, it usually admonished governments to act with quote-unquote justice and charity, disapproving only of violent excesses or the most extravagant forms of oppression. When mass killings of Jews and other groups began, the Vatican was extremely well-informed through its own diplomatic channels and through a variety of other contacts. Unearthed documents from 1942 show that the Vatican had evidence of the atrocities but said otherwise to U.S. officials. Despite numerous appeals, however, Pope Pius XII refused to issue explicit denunciations of the murder of Jews or call upon the Nazis directly to stop the killings. After the victory of the Allied forces in Germany to end World War II, the Nazis were forced to seek refuge outside Europe. Thousands of Nazis managed to escape to South American countries, specifically Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Harvard researcher Gerald Steinhauser wrote a book that shows travel documents pointing to the Vatican having helped the Nazis travel to these countries. Steinhauser argues that it was done with the hopes of reviving European Christianity and fear of the growing influence of the Soviet Union. The Vatican, however, has refused to comment on these claims. In addition to aiding the escapes of thousands of Nazis from Europe, the Vatican was also involved in helping smuggle Nazi looted art, golf, and other property belonging to Jewish families. Gerald Posner, an American journalist, said that Bernardino Nagara, the financial advisor to the Vatican, is believed to have been one of Nazi spies. He is believed to have instituted a horrifying scheme that allowed the Vatican to invest money in Italian insurance companies that kept the assets from the life insurance policies of the murdered Jewish families. Since the Vatican was an investor and not a direct insurer, they did not need to return any of the money they made using the scheme. And finally, we'll talk about accusations of sex abuse and the slow response from the Vatican. And I believe we've kind of talked about doing like a fully in-depth episode on this. So we're just going to do something a little brief. People around the world have accused priests, nuns, and other Catholic church officials of sexual abuse. In the late 1940s, the American priest Gerald Fitzgerald founded a religious order that treated Roman Catholic priests who struggled with personal difficulties such as substance use and sexual misconduct. In a series of letters and reports to high-ranking Catholic leaders starting in the 1950s, Gerald warned of substantial problems with abusive priests. He wrote, for example, quote, sexual abuse offenders were unlikely to change and should not be returned to ministry, end quote. The accusations of abuse and cover-ups began to receive public attention during the late 1980s. In 2002, an investigation by the Boston Globe led to widespread media coverage of the issue in the United States. Widespread abuse has been exposed in Europe, Australia, Chile, and the United States, reflecting worldwide patterns of long-term abuse as well as the church hierarchy's pattern of regularly covering up reports of abuse. Patrick Nash, a British scholar, said, quote, The Catholic Church, like other large organizations, has occasionally put its own interests above those of individual members. Around the world, cultures of abuse have flourished at public universities and media companies and even in non-governmental organizations, end quote. 
Though the three most recent popes have apologized to victims, the Vatican has been criticized for a slow response. John L. Allen Jr., a Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter, commented that many American Catholics saw the Vatican's initial silence on the Boston Globe stories as showing a lack of concern or awareness about the issue. Del, do you have any thoughts on any of these scandals or controversies that we talked about? I mean, I think the Catholic Church, like many other longstanding, highly regarded institutions, definitely are going to have their fair shares of controversies and other things that they have done that people may not agree with. I definitely don't think that it takes away from the great work that the church has done, but it's often an area of which they can improve upon. When it comes to their finances, it's definitely one of those situations where You question, well, is it good or bad for them to open up their books more widely? Is there a way where they can increase transparency while also respecting the privacy that goes into running the largest church in the world? When it comes to World War II, definitely a black stain on the church. I think that their message of peace and nonviolence kind of aided them in their thinking. And we definitely know in hindsight that that was wrong, but kind of try to put myself in their shoes of what they were dealing with and trying to make sure that they were like relying on the things that they were teaching and guiding their actions. But definitely wrong and definitely not something that shows them in the best light, especially when you look at the things that they did afterwards with like helping them to escape and keeping the money that they gained from the insurance policies that were taken out by Jewish families. We can definitely do a whole episode and probably a whole series on the church and the alleged sexual abuse that has happened within it. It's definitely been several kind of like waves of accusations. And I think the fact that the three most recent popes, so that's Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, they've all apologized. They've all authorized the church to pay out a lot of money to not only educate uh, priests on what's going on and try to educate the public, but also paying out settlements to victims. So I guess the question is like, what more can they really do? Is there other things that they can do? There is a hierarchy. And I think sometimes people might put the blame on the Pope and the person that they see versus actually putting the target on the individual priests that are actually doing the abuse and, you know, saying, well, you know, the church is just covering it up. Well, we don't know what all the internal things they're doing to solve the problem. So again, we could talk about this more in a later episode, but you know, I kind of go back and forth with the question of like, has the church done enough? I personally think they have, but I definitely understand the opposing side when it comes to the Catholic church reaction to the different uh, sex abuse scandals that they have been associated with. What are your thoughts? Some of the stuff that we talked about was a lot of new information for me. I 
do not remember this Vatican leak scandal happening. I mean, I think I would have been like of an age to remember it because I mean, it's pretty damning accusations of corruption and the money stuff. I mean, it's almost like cartoonish. This a Monsignor wanting the apartment next door and going to the lengths of waiting until this other priest, we didn't mention this, but the priest living next door was in the hospital and that's how he got in and knocked down this wall and moved his belongings, which is wild to say the least. And I'm glad that Fittipaldi and Newsy weren't charred or were cleared because I mean, I, I do think that it, the public needs to know about this kind of stuff. The Vatican in World War II, I definitely had not heard of this. I will say kind of like what you were saying, I think to a point it was kind of just like common practice for the church or maybe other major religious organizations to be neutral during times of war. And like you said, you know, like, yeah, it was common, but it's not right. And we know it's not right. And it is a stain. I found it really shocking to hear about how the Vatican had like played a role in smuggling the looted art and even property belonging to Jewish families and that they were allowed to keep that stuff. That's appalling. And that, I I mean, there's probably a, a ton of things that the church needs to apologize for to some extent. That I think is definitely one of them. And again, with the sexual abuse, it's something we're all probably familiar with at this point. I think Pope Francis has definitely done more than other popes in the past have. I know there was a controversy where he was maybe like victim blaming or saying like people were lying about things, but he did hold a summit on working to address this with people within the church participating and, you know, experts in the field participating too. And maybe that's just for appearance. Maybe he genuinely believes in supporting these people and bringing change to the Catholic church. It's good that he's doing that. But when you see these numbers of people accusing church officials, priests, nuns of sexual abuse, it's staggering. And there's also, if we talk about it, we can talk about this too, nuns being abused by priests and high officials. It's sickening. I would recommend if anybody does want to hear a little bit more, the Netflix documentary, The Keepers, goes into a lot of the Catholic Church is reaction to sexual abuse, um, specifically set in the city of Baltimore, and a nun that went missing, possibly related to her knowledge of the sexual abuse. I think that's a really fascinating story. I will say it's very upsetting. You do hear about the victims talking about their abuse and it truly like I'm getting chills thinking about it. It's just, it's really hard to hear, but I think it's really worth it if you are interested. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week. As always, stay safe.